I'm kind of trying this day to share this message from the heart. And so I won't, I'm not going to say there isn't preparation because after 46, going on 47 years of study of the Word of God, there's plenty of preparation. So I'm speaking from the heart. I hope that you listen from the heart. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, Your Word is a masterpiece. It's, you know, you create art, you give men gifts, you allow men to do things that are pretty extraordinary. Of course, you should be the one who should be getting the glory. The masterpiece of all masterpieces is your word. For in it we find truth, undisturbed, unaltered truth. No lies within your word. It's the only place on earth we can go to find absolute truth. It is a masterpiece of all masterpieces of literature. It is a shows metaphorically pictures. It's history. It's it's everything that we need to bring us to the one who's behind all the purposes, all the plans for man. It's the eternal God. We thank you and we praise you for your word. It's magnificence. The picture that it paints for us. The meaning it gives. We give you praise for your word because it's within those pages that we look even today once again to see truth, to understand who you are and what you're doing and where it's all going to come to a final conclusion. We pray, our Father, hide the teacher behind your word that we might see Jesus and only him and give only him glory. In his name we pray. Amen. We have in this podcast been looking through the book of Romans. Romans is an absolute necessity for anyone who wants to understand properly what the Bible has to say. God's holy word. The the book of Romans is, when I was a kid we used to have at the end of each chapter in our school textbooks, uh, we used to have what was called a nutshell. And in the nutshell was a summary of what was said in that chapter. So you could glean that paragraph or two and know what the chapter had been saying. Well, the, the, the book of Romans is the nutshell. It's that uh, condensed version of what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and he gave them the main doctrines of the Bible and specifically the, the plan of the ages. 
how those doctrines reflect who he is and what he's doing. And in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see the sinfulness of man with different shades and, and variables that take place within people because people are also different the way God made them. But one factor that goes across all lines of people, and that is that we're all sinners. I mean, there are many constants. We all have a body. We all have a soul. We all were given the spirit um, in the beginning. And, and then man fell in the garden. And, and the effects that that fall has is seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then chapter 4 and 5 talks about justification by faith alone. And then chapters um, 5 shows really identification with Christ. By the time we get to chapter 6 and 7, we're dealing with sanctification, which is that process by which a saint, having come into the kingdom through God-given faith, by grace, because Paul, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, he said, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. Uh, 2, 8, and 9 of Ephesians. And then we understand that man is dead and trespasses and sins. And, and so man can't do something when he's dead. He has to be made alive. And so there's this doc, doctrine of predestination, which is included in chapter 8. We'll look at it in a minute. But there's this sanctification process. Having entered through faith, we are to live by faith. And sanctification is that where we are separated unto God and live for his holy purpose. So we go from a sinner to a saint by the grace of God. And there's a process because we're not perfect when we come to Christ in this sinful world. There's purposes behind that. That God leaves men in a partially sinful condition even though he's given a new heart. He's given a new mind. Hebrews chapters 8 and 10 talk about the covenant that God made with his people. And then he would write his laws on their mind and place them in his heart. And that's revealed in this chapters 6 and 7. And that there's a problem that man has living under the law, chapter 6 primarily, and Israel being given the law, and we're given the law for a purpose to show that we are sinful people in order to bring us to Christ in need of a Savior. But being freed from that law is trouble for the, to, for the Christian, and it, Paul deals with that in chapter 6 primarily, and then in chapter 7, he deals with the flesh and the problem that this part of us that kind of remains as a residue, but because we are a new creation in Christ, because we were made into something new, it's not primarily who we are. And if we study, and we did here, study through the definitions of the words that passage in 7, chapter 7, 14 to 25, very difficult to understand, particularly in English. But when you look at the definitions of the words, the original Greek words, it comes off with kind of a the same but different meaning, meaning that there is conflict, but it's a conflict of a man who is a new creation in Christ and how he can be set by this part that's left, which is a nagging 
part that is not really who he is in his truest nature. And then in chapter 8, Paul goes on and shows the need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the greater part of that chapter deals with that reality that we are a new creation in Christ and we are dependent not on the flesh, not to work things out in our own effort, but through revival of soul, through a spiritual a relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit who lives within, which will be an eternal factor, even after we're made perfect, that our dependence is always upon the living God and uh, to live a spiritual life dependent upon Him, which was showed even in the beginning in the garden where God placed a tree, which was the tree of life. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represented temptation and sin. And then there's the tree of life, which represents the Holy Spirit of God that imparts eternal life in souls of men, which God created. And he created for that reason that he might indwell people and be their very life, which Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me, you can do nothing. We understand that the vine coming up from the roots is the very life of the branches. And if they're severed from that vine, then they die and they can't produce anything. They can't even live. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Metaphor for the Holy Spirit who is to live within us throughout eternity in a union between God and men. God living in the hearts of men. I mean, this is hard to fathom. But by the time we get to Romans 8, he starts to ask questions. But before we look at that, I want us to consider the fact that man questions God. That's the nature of sin. And more than question, accuse God. So when something happens and a a hurricane takes place, or tornadoes and people are wiped out and earthquakes and by the dozens and by the hundreds and thousands sometimes, We look at these pictures and we question, where was God? Well, wait. (laughs) When people ask that question, I have a question. And the question is, how well do you know God? How well have you studied God through his word, which is the only place on earth where you can get it without deception, without lies, if, in fact, you're given the Holy Spirit by which you can understand the scripture which the Holy Spirit wrote? Now, in that place... In that place where we go from questioning and accusing and blaming God for the evil in the world, when we study the fall of man into sin, man's condition before holy God as a blasphemer, an idolater, a murderer, an accuser, a liar, a cheat, a man of deception and greed and hatred, and lies, when, all, when you put all of that together, and we, we see who we are, and then we stop and we realize who we're accusing. The I am that I am, who stood before Moses in the burning bush, and declared himself to be the one without beginning and without end. Moses says, who shall I say to the children of Israel, sent me? I mean, they're going to want to know your name, and God says... I am that I am. I am? That's right. No birth, no death, no time, 
totally outside of the realm that he's created this material universe. And he's created the souls of men and the spirits of angels. And he's outside of all of that. He's always been. He knows everything. He has all power. I mean, he's beyond comprehension. And men scoff and laugh at this. The concept of such a being. We can't explain where everything comes from. The question comes from little children. Daddy, where did everything come from? The question is there. It's a reasonable question. It's the most reasonable question there is. And we can't give an answer because as sinners we hate God and we don't want to understand who he is. And that's why for hundreds of years, thousands, men chopped down trees and they took gold and silver and they turned it into an idol and they declared it to be God, the work of their own hands, just showing how sinful men are, that they can create God. No, it's the other way around. God created us and everything that is, and he's the only, expression, the only explanation because he's outside of time. And he's bigger than everything we know. We know everything has a beginning. A tree, a chicken, man himself. We're born, we die, we grow old. What's the reason? Sin, as declared in God's holy word. And then go after going through all of this and understanding through Romans 8 that there is a need for us, the dependence on God, and he offers all, that, all of that we need through the working of the Holy Spirit to give us truth, to give us reality, to see things as they are, and the presence to live a holy life, to fulfill the will of God. And we understand from Romans 8 that all of this is given to us that it comes from God, and he is the means. And as we ending this towards the Romans 8, and, and I was reading and studying through verses 28 and following, and I'll read these now, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So he has a purpose. And we also know that all things that take place, well, how could a hurricane killing people be in the purpose of God? Well, if some of those people were a new creation in Christ, and we all die, it's just a matter of how that's the problem to people at that, at that point that we discuss a hurricane or an earthquake. We all die, and the, and the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. So physical death still faces all people saved and lost alike. And how it happens is really kind of immaterial that it happens, and it happens to everyone. No, get, no one gets out of this life alive. And the purpose behind death is that it's a consequence for sin, and it speaks to us all the time. Why do people have to die? Sin. Why do people have to die? Because of the consequence of sin. Now to an unrighteous man, he goes into a holding place, which we know as hell, until the final judgment. For the righteous, those who are saved by the grace of God, they go into eternal, they go into eternal state in heaven, where they're near God, for, and they're, they're clo- they, they have fellowship with the eternal God as we begin here through the Holy Spirit. And so there's forgiveness and mercy and grace and things that people don't want to know about and they want to scoff at because they want to know about hell. They don't want to know about sin, and they don't want to know about the penalty 
and the consequences of sin because they, don't, they want to see themselves as good because that's what pride does. And that's where sin begins, in pride. It began by pride in Satan when he fell, the greatest of all the angels. And it begins in man when he's tempted by the devil and when he's even born into this world, as we learn through chapter 5 of Romans, where we're identified with Adam and we're identified with Christ. Now, all of these need study. They need to be pondered. They need to be considered and understand the, the significance of truth in our lives. But the purpose is found in verse 29 where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose is conformity to Christ. If there's one true God, and there is, if that one true God is, is perfect and without blemish, then that one true God, and if everything else that we might worship is an idol, and if idolatry is sin, then the only logical, reasonable way to live our lives in conformity to God. And God provided that perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, who he makes our brethren, who he makes to dwell within us, who identified with us as a man when he died on the cross. You want to know the significance of the purposes and plans of God? You have to understand identification. Big word, big doctrine. Identification with Christ. He became one of us so that we may become exactly like him. Not in his, in his non... Uh, in his characteristics that we cannot obtain which are the infinite ones, that he's always been, that he's everywhere present, that he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Not those, but in character. To be loving and kind, to be giving, to be long-suffering, to care more for others than we care for ourselves. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in a living relationship as the divine family and how they live towards one another. The Father giving all glory to the Son. The Son giving all praise and obedience to the Father. The Holy Spirit giving oh, oh, the, the truth of who the Father and the Son are to mankind without hardly any mention of himself. God truly is selfless. Like nothing that we experience as sinful, selfish, prideful people. Each one of us, as in Isaiah 53 says, going his own way. That's the nature of sin. We hide from God. We hide from one another. We, we're just selfish. That's the nature of sin. God is selfless. And yet, he's the one who receives all the glory and gets everything done. He, he's, he's the all power in the universe, the, the person of the universe, the person of, of persons, but yet selfless. It's not a contradiction. It's a, it's a divine fulfillment of truth. Verse 30 and these whom he predestined, so it's in God's hands because he planned it and he carried it out from the beginning. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all accomplished from God from beginning to end. From, from predestination to glorification, it's all God. And I went through that in our last lesson. But then he takes us from this place 
of this divine purpose and plan. And he takes us to this place where he then answers a question. It's a question of all questions that leads to, to the believer an assurance of his condition before God because God did it all. We can't undo it. And that's where he begins in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? The ones I've just been talking about from chapter 1 right through chapter 8 and these very previous verses talking about the purpose and plan of God of conforming us to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? Next sentence, powerful question. Second question. What shall we say to these things? One. Two. If God is for us, who is against us? God is for us. Why? Because of these things. We are predestined. We are foreknown or foreloved. We are loved ahead of time to place upon those who deserve eternal punishment, those chosen by his grace, which we do not deserve. He didn't have to choose anyone. And to see that God is God, and he has the rights to do with the clay as he will. He can mold it for poor use of a, a spittoon, or he can use it as a, a golden chalice in the king's court. Either way, it's God's divine, eternal right to do with as he says. But see, the sinner questions and says, why would God do such a thing? So are you going to talk to God and you're going to tell God what to do? Okay, so just acknowledge that when that question comes to mind, it's sin that's propelling the question. Paul, speaking about those chosen by God's right to show grace to those who deserve eternal punishment. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, man, man, you, laugh. you know, God scoffs, he laughs at man because in his pride he thinks he can take on God. What a ridiculous concept. So let's see, um, men, are we able to put the sun in its place? Are we able to cause the, the earth to revolve around the sun? You know how many millions of miles we're talking? You know, are we talking with comprehension of reality? <clears throat> if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on to another question, which isn't about power. It's not about power. It's about sacrificial giving. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. Let me stop for a moment and say this. You know, there's different ways of 
preaching a sermon. The basic way taught in seminary or Bible school or by men who want to preach well, um, there is preparation, of course, the study and understanding of God's Word, and um, actually observing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, for an example, where Jesus preached the way only God could, and he, he puts thoughts in men's minds, and he, he gives men the ability to observe and, and then um, copy what he did. And so there's ways of speaking to men that make things interesting. And we understand that Jesus knew everything and he, he could speak from his heart. And he could still make it unfold and come out correctly and well. And sometimes men can get so wrapped up in the, the format, if you will, uh, the, the, the schematic of how to preach a sermon that they can lose their heart as so to speak, with the, the truth of God's word as all important. And make you know the frame of the sermon more important than the body of truth. And I'm kind of trying this day to share this message from the heart. And so I won't, I'm not going to say there isn't preparation because after 46 going on 47 years of study of the Word of God, there's plenty of preparation in knowing God's Word. And preparation is important because we need to know the truth and we need to know God. And actually speaking from the, God, from the heart, this is all for those teachers and preachers out there, um, and which we all need to be, even at an individual one-on-one -on -one discipling someone level. Um, but because that command goes to everyone. But knowing Jesus is, is as important as knowing the Word. We know Him through the Word, but we also know Him through experiences of life. We know Him through prayer. We know Him personally in, in many ways. And I know to some they're going to cringe a little bit when I make that kind of a statement, but it's a reality. I mean, if you don't know Jesus on your knees having hidden his word in your heart so that you can speak truth to yourself and to God, if you're, if you're not communicating that way, well, there's a, a huge loss. No matter how well, you can know the word and not know Jesus. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That, that knowledge, that knowledge is a personal knowledge. It's not just a factual knowledge. A factual knowledge the Pharisees had. And they wanted to crucify and did everything they could and did have Christ crucified according to the will of God and they didn't do it on their own. It was in the plan. But they made the choices and responsible for them. So knowing the word of God and not knowing Jesus, is that's a big loss. That's an eternal loss, or could be. So I'm speaking from the heart. I hope that you listen from the heart. In this sermon, because the the big question that we're looking at right now is the main point of this particular message, which is he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Who did he what did he deliver him over to or for?
he delivered him over to God. Because God sends people to hell. And to my Armenian brothers out there who believe that man sends himself to hell, he doesn't. He's responsible for his sinful behavior and his sinful choices. And that's what sin is. It's a choice. Just like love is a choice, we're told, you know, and it is. So, so sinful choices are that. They're the choice to sin. And that's where our responsibility lies. We can be t- lies. We, we can be tempted. And we are tempted, and sometimes from without, sometimes within, now that we're all born in sin. And, and, and it just grow, can grow up from the inside, but it also can come from the outside. We can be tempted by the devil. We can be tempted by the world. I mean, people all around us all the time doing things that they love to do that are sinful, and they want us to do them too to justify themselves. And so temptation comes from the world and from the devil. But those those temptations are not sin until they conceive within themselves, as James tells us in chapter 1. And once it's conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. And so that choice leads to an inner being of sinfulness. The desires become sinful. The lusts are sinful. And the actions are sinful. Begins with temptation, but ends, culminates in sin. And God is the one who condemns because, see, God is righteous. It's not our wicked sinfulness that sends us to eternal punishment. It's God's righteousness and justice that does that. And this is an important point because men have been wrapped up so much in the love of God, they don't even hear and see the righteousness of God anymore. They don't see, hear, and I say not totally, there's plenty of good godly men who talk about that. Some not the way they should or in an amount that they should because they want to cushion people with the love of God. Because when you speak about the righteousness and justice of God, people flee. Well, we don't change the message because people flee. We pray knowing that God draws those to himself whom he will. And flee though men might. Come they will by the sovereign will of Almighty God. And so we don't change the message. We don't alter it. We don't make it something it's not meant to be, even just in proportions. This week I spent a lot of time in Isaiah. I've been going through Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't cushion anything because God doesn't. And he was inspired by God to write and to proclaim his message as in, in, in the book of Isaiah. And there are mountains of drudging through sin and accusing men of being sinful and wicked. And then there are mountaintops of glory and grace and forgiveness and restoration and revival and the gift of God. Beautiful mountaintops sitting atop a mountain of guilt and shame and sin and wretchedness and wickedness and the vileness of proud, sinful, hateful men. And we live in a world today with variables of good and evil. The good 
being among believers, the moral people among sinful people who still do moral things until they degrade to totally wretched people who just want to do evil all the time. Those variables don't change truth in any way. They confuse sinful people, but sanctified believers begin to learn through the word of God that those variables don't change the fact that all people sin and all people need salvation. And there was one way that God did that. And that way was to not spare his own son, but deliver him over to the righteous punishment of Almighty God. It wasn't the nails that saved men from sin. That just declared that men hated God and were willing to put God to death. And so they put Jesus Christ, who is God in person form, to death. That's all that was. Suffering, absolutely. Horrendous way to die a physical death. The truth, uh, that's exactly what that was. In truth, it was an awful way to die physically. But that was not the punishment of God. The punishment of God is something that I can't explain. It's something that I've never experienced, nor will any Christian ever experience. Someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone will never experience the horrors of being cast into outer darkness, as Jesus explained in one way, and to be cast into the lake of fire in another, where there will be all people in one place, although I believe separated from each one, each one going to a place separated in a place of darkness. There are two places designated for two people. One is those people which will go into the glory of Christ where all darkness is done away. We look into the night sky and we see black. And we see little speckles of light which are suns in the galaxy and in the galaxies and in the universe. Too far to comprehend, but this we know, little bits of light among darkness. It's a picture. It's a picture of that there's light out there. There's lights in every saint who's ever lived. And the light that's in the saint is the presence of the living God who is light. And one day the universe will go out of existence and then the new heavens and earth will come into existence and it'll be a, a, a heaven of, of light where there's no suns, there's no stars. But God himself who is light lights every man and lights the universe. And there's only light. We can see everything. The new Jerusalem comes down which is made of glass. There's nothing hidden. There's no walls. It's transparent, and yet it, it's, there's beings, and it's all light. And then there's another place, which is in another dimension, where sinners go into outer darkness. You want to live in darkness? You get darkness. You're called by God's grace to live in the light, and then we get light. And he gives us a new heart, and we make a choice, and we go into that place. But what's the cost of living in that place? The cost is that God spared not his own son. You want to see the love of God? You look to the cross, and look beyond the nails, look beyond the thorns, look beyond the spear, 
look beyond the, the scourging and the and the go the, the bones that are staring him in the face because his skin has been ripped away, the bloody mess that was hung upon a cross, conceived in the minds and hearts of of the Romans, just as another form of sin. And they put Christ on that on that cross, bloodied and and dying and and dead and, and going to die, not because he would have died as a sinner, except that he took the sinner's place. And God allowed him to die, and he took his own life. In the end, he gave up the spirit. Why? Because when it was over, he wasn't a sinner anymore. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become become the righteousness of God in him. That substitutionary work was a work of God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He would not have died otherwise. And when it was over and he's hanging on the cross, he wouldn't have died. He had to give up his life. He had to experience death. And so he gave it to the Father. And the Father allowed him to go into death because that was the plan. And so the body died. And the Spirit went to the Old Testament saints who were abiding in paradise up to that point. Great gulf was fixed between the, sin, the saints in paradise and sinners in hell. And Jesus talks about that in the Gospel of Luke. And so there, there he was for, four, for, for three days. And then he rose from the dead as he told those saints and as he explained the, the fulfillment of that plan in him to those saints. He rose from the dead and he spent 40 days with the disciples explaining to them in detail, everything he had been telling them, and to wait for the Holy Spirit who would enlighten their mind and heart with these truths because the Holy Spirit was promised to come and, and explain Christ in the heart with meaning. And on the day of Pentecost, it all became perfectly clear. He had been teaching them for 40 days. And after that 40 days, he went back to that paradise and he, he led captivity captive, as we're told, in Ephesians chapter 4, and he just brought them to, to heaven. What a glorious day that was. <laughs> when the saints who had been waiting some for thousands of years, going back to Abel, who was slain by his brother Cain, Abel being the first known in the word explained believer, who offered a bloody sacrifice, unlike his brother Cain, who offered the work of his own hands. And he was led finally into the presence of God to live eternally with him. It's an emotional thing to think about the saints being led up, <clears throat> but the more emotional is in chapter 8 of verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but who delivered him up. I'm sorry. Who delivered him over for us all. All who would believe. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Why? All who believe. 
Because Jesus is our high priest and he intercedes for those who are chosen. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he, uh, he made the, he acknowledged that those that he prayed for were those who were given to him from the Father. In verse 9 he said, I, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Verse 8, For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I asked on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you gave me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. See, there's those chosen out of the world, and then there's the world. All the world deserves to go. Every last man, woman, and child ever born in the race of Adam deserves eternal punishment. And it's only righteous to punish. How is it righteous for God to choose because he's righteous? It's a character thing. Sinful men don't understand that because we're sinful. But God is perfect and he's righteous. Shall not the God of all the earth do what's right? It's, it's a question which can only be answered one way, yes. Because he's righteous. If you don't understand that, you have to accept it by faith, and that's what every child of God does. It's not a problem for me. It's not a problem for Christians with knowledge of the Word of God because we all understand that he did, who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not all us with him freely give us all things? We understand that in that sacrifice is a love we can't even comprehend. How does God take God because God the Father is God, and God the Son is equally God. And they're equal in time. There is no time with God. They've always been that way. It's not who came first. We don't see God in Son to that extent, and God the Father to that extent, because we understand Father and Son in time. These are Father and Son out of time. God the Son is God. How does God take God and put Him and give place upon Him the punishment that sinful created beings deserve. I don't know. <laughs> what I know is it's true. Because when a man receives the spirit of the living God, he confirms it by that spirit that it's true. And when God confirms something, that's, that's it. No man can deny it. And no man can change it. So when he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Can we answer that question? Yes. No one. Who can overrule God would be another way of saying it. No one, not the devil himself, can overrule God. God is the all-powerful being in, uh, in his creation. 
God is the one who justifies. He makes sinful men just in his sight. How can he do that? Because the penalty that we were to pay was placed upon Jesus the Son. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us as high priest. A priest is one who intercedes between God and men. God cannot fellowship with sinful men. We need someone to go between. Even Job knew his Redeemer lived. The Redeemer is the, is the sacrifice. The Redeemer is the one who makes it right. I don't know to what extent Job understood that, but the Redeemer makes it right. Jesus made it right by paying the price that we were meant to pay. So then who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's, it's Jesus who condemns. Jesus sends people to hell as a righteous judge, the one who makes the right decision. A man murders, he dies. A man sins, he dies. And in death, he goes to eternal punishment. Why eternal? Because he'll never repent. It's not in the nature of sinful men to repent. That's why God had to do something. Romans 8, 7 makes that perfectly clear that Man will not submit to the law of God. He is not willing. He is not even able to do so. Not able. What does that mean? It means he can't do it. He doesn't have the capacity to do it. He doesn't have the willingness to do it. So God had to do something. He sent his son. Now that he sent his son, and the son died then who is the one who condemns? The only one who condemns is God. He's only the one who has a right to do that. So when the Pharisees condemned Jesus for forgiving sins, they got it right. They didn't get Jesus right. They got, they got it right that only God has the right to do that. But you see, we, as sinful people, we take that to ourselves all the time. We make unrighteous judgments. We condemn people. We condemn one another. We condemn ourselves. We sit in the seat of judgment. And with just a, a bit of honesty, you know, last week I went through that. I had to, again, go to the cross and, and confess that I had been crossing the line. The Christian is a person who can easily cross the line. And he has to beware and watch. Because we are called to make judgments, regardless of how people abuse and misuse Thou shalt not judge. We are called to make judgments. Do you not know, Paul said to the church at Corinth, that you will judge angels? Are you not capable of making these little judgments in the church? He was calling the, ju the church to judge sin and to judge those who were involved with sin so that they might turn from it and repent. That's what we need to do. That's what I was doing last week. I had to cross the line in judgment, and in that judgment I had to confess it. And Jesus said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. I don't care who knows this. Because you see, my, all my sin is under the blood. It went under the blood 2,000 years ago. 
I needed to know that in my heart. I needed to be cleansed from it again, from being guilty again, which we are commanded to do in 1 John chapter 1. And in 2 through 5, we're commanded to live a righteous and holy life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the power of God, which only takes place sometimes when we go back to chapter 1 where we confess sin. And we own up to sin again, and we, we, we recognize it, which we should always be doing constantly. Is if there's sin in their life, and there is more than we are willing to admit, then we bring it to the cross, and we confess, and it's washed away, and it's peace and, and the power to not do that sin. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I, teach, I tell you these things, so you won't sin. And I experienced that. I'm done. Judgment's over for me right now. And I'm not going touching that, and I'm not going near that again. I can be tempted in the future, and every single day I have to be aware that there can be a fall. But right now, I'm not touching it. As soon as I start to think about something right now, it's under the blood. Because I don't need the guilt, I need the power of the Holy Spirit, and I need the presence of God. And that doesn't work with sin. It just doesn't work. And the way we stay there is to stay in the Word of God. And right now what I'm delivering up here is who will bring a charge against God's elect? The accuser was cast out for me. The one who was tempting me to go overboard on judgment. And I was feeling it in my soul and I was being mentioned by my wife, my godly wife who was saying, back up, back up, back off. And I'm not going to back off of just being discerning and I'm not going to back off of making judgments. But backing off to the point of sitting in the seat of God, absolutely. Because the one who makes judgments on the church is the one who says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's interceding on our behalf. He's not condemning or judging anymore. Why would he judge what he suffered so horribly to forgive? That judgment is done. He remembers. He knows the suffering. He entered into the body of a man and as Almighty God, and as a man, he suffered a penalty for every person that would have taken an eternity. How can he do that? Because God is not bound by time. I don't understand that I can't explain it. But in three hours, from noon to three o'clock, when darkness fell upon the earth, and man was not permitted to even look on the physical body of Christ to see the sufferings that took place. Can only amount, uh, imagine, can't imagine the contortions that his body went into because of the sufferings that he felt in, as a man and as Almighty God, as eternal sins and penalty was placed upon him at that time. So I, I end this message with this thought. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who also intercedes for us. He's there saying, yes, this one is, is, is in sin right now. He's not backing off, but I died for that person. Even these sins right now, they're forgiven. And he sends the Holy Spirit to bring his death afresh to our minds and our hearts. He brings the Holy Spirit so that we might know assurance of salvation. He brings the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit into our heart so we might have cleansing from that sin that we might not sin it any longer. This is the intercessory work of the righteous God who otherwise would condemn us to an eternal destiny in hell. With the sufferings on him, he will never condemn us again. He may reprove us. He may chasten us as sons, and he will. Thank God for that. But he will not condemn us ever again. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for not sparing your own son. (laughs) Lord, words cannot express what we feel in our heart that you did not spare your own son. Lord, the world is oblivious to these truths as, as so many people so resistantly refuse and reject this word. Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself in the hearing of this message. Because it's the only message, it's the only gospel. There's only one gospel. I pray that you would draw souls to yourself to be saved. I pray that you would bring them into a relationship with Christ that would come no other way. I pray people would bow their head. That they would bend that stiff neck and that hard heart would become soft by your grace bestowed upon them. That they might understand the reality of Christ's offering. The blessing of his intercessory work as high priest to intercede for us, to give us the victory through the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. His life, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his love poured into the, into the heart of a sinner to make him a saint. The true meaning of revival, the life of God poured into the hearts of men, women, children. Lord, pour out your love. Show yourself to be who you really are in the lives of those chosen before the foundation of the world. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.